It's always interesting because when I sit down and before worship, um, I, you know, it's like, you know, 50 people here. And then when I stand up to preach, I wonder, where'd you all come from? <laughs> so welcome back, everybody. It is um, good to be together, um, worshiping together. And as, as always, thank you, worship teams. We have a, number of, a fair number of worship teams here. Thank you, as always, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. Um, as we were singing, um, holy, 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 I just thought, God wants these moments to be deep and profound and holy. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we have sung your praise. We've rejoiced in your resurrection. Father, we have proclaimed your grace. And we said it in song, but we want to say it in prayer as well. We want to come alive with life that is truly life. So as we look at the theme before us this morning, Father, help us to to come alive in the area of all of our thinking about money and that kind of life that is truly life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, think about money. What feelings, what emotions come to mind when you think about money? Marriage Partnership Magazine said a few years ago, that single word is freighted with more power, more emotion, more symbolism, and more myth than almost any other word in the English language. They say only love and possibly sex carry the same wallop. Money evokes a jumble of responses. Envy, joy, fear, guilt, lust, hope, and scorn, just to name a few. One person commented that if Freud were alive today in our generation, he wouldn't be talking about sex, he'd be talking about money. So, how do you feel about money? Each and every one of us has a unique to us money story. Each of us has feelings, emotions, perspectives about money that are a result of the family we grew up in. And and interestingly, research has shown how parents hand down to their children perspectives and emotions about money. Whether you are, are, have adopted your parents' attitudes and emotions about money or whether you have reacted to them, your parents have handed down to you emotions and perspectives about money. Which complicates the whole thing even more because we're not just dealing with our own experiences, but we're dealing with multi-generational perspectives when it comes to money. The downside of that is that we are dealing often with the, um, the perspectives about money that are not aligned with the teaching of Jesus that our parents had. And we've got to wrestle through those. The upside of it is that if we will wrestle through those, then we will hand down to our children healthy, wholesome perspectives on money. So we all have this money story that we carry around with us 
in our heads. And, um, and they start in our childhood, and they continue to take shape and to shape us for the rest of our lives. And the crazy thing is how often we are so clueless about our own money story. Our money stories are, are so much a part of who we are that we think that while everybody's got the same money perspectives and money story feelings about money that we have, or everybody should. And one of the things about not becoming reflective about your money story is you will tend to foist that on other people in your life. We're told that the number one topic that couples fight about today isn't sex, it's not anything about raising kids, it's not anything about sharing the chores. The number one topic that couples fight about in our generation and in your generation is money. Because what happens is we fall in love and then we marry this person and then our different money stories collide. And we figure out that this other person doesn't have the same feelings that they're supposed to have about money because they're the ones that we have. We all carry these money stories around us. And we should not be naive. Your money story affects innumerable areas of your life. Your money story comes into play every time you see a commercial and there's a tug that says you might want that. Your money story comes into play whenever you take out a credit card, whenever you spend money, whenever you save money. Your money story comes into play when you are envious of what somebody else has or when you scorn somebody else because they have or don't have what you might have or what you might not have. Our money stories influence our politics. Think of how much the political parties in the U.S. are an accumulation of different money stories, different emotions and feelings that are developed in people's hearts. And then they think that everybody's supposed to have the same story that they have. Our money stories emerge when we, take, when we receive our paycheck. Our money stories emerge when we get a raise. And when we don't get a raise, our money stories emerge when we go to the grocery store. When we go out to eat, every time we do a financial transaction, every time we pay our bills, every time we see a bill, our personal money story emerges. So I did an internet search this week on money and emotions. And one economist wrote that 80% of our financial decisions are driven by our emotions. How we feel about ourselves, about others, about money, having it, spending it, saving it, borrowing it, asking for it, and giving it. Another economist wrote, the value you place on money is hugely driven by emotion. Behind every dollar you spend, there's an emotion attached to it. Get clear on the emotional driver, and you get clear on your relationship to money. And then a third economist says, money evokes very interesting emotions. It can be a source of happiness as well as stress. Emotions could be one of the biggest stumbling blocks to changing from your current behavior to your desired behavior regarding managing your personal finances. Managing the emotions behind money is what will determine your financial success or failure. So I'd read a bunch of these articles just trying to figure out how are people who think about this all the time, how are they dealing with it? And here's some of the emotions that came up in just reading article after article um, from economists and financial advisors. Um, emotions such as anxiety, jealousy, Regret, embarrassment, sadness, guilt, heaviness, 
burdens, elation, overconfidence, recklessness, and fear. And one professor at Yale University reported the three most common emotions about money are fear, anger, and greed. None of these are mild emotions. These are powerful, powerful, you know, energies within us that are trying to be expressed. So as we enter into the next three weeks of talking about what Jesus really taught about money, let's admit to ourselves that our money stories are complicated and are fairly deep. They touch some kind of core of our being. And this is not just now. This has always been the case for the human race. And let's be aware that whatever or whoever has the greatest influence over our emotions about money has great, great influence over our hearts. Let's not be naive about this either. Whoever or whatever has the greatest influence over our money stories will shape our emotions and our hearts. If Madison Avenue marketers have the greatest influence over your money story, then they will own you. If financial advisors have the greatest influence over your money story, then they will own you. If the past has the greatest influence, your past will control you. If spending beyond your means has the greatest influence, then financial debt will own you. All of which is why, perhaps, Jesus talks so much about money. Jesus wants us to get our emotions healthy around money, which is why probably he spoke about money more than any other topic, more even than love, Jesus talked about money. Twelve of his major 38 parables were about money or giving or debt or owing. And here at Cornerstone, I pray that what has already started in our curriculum like Lazarus at the Gate, I pray that part of our discipling together will be a wholeness and a holiness about how we think about money. So a number of years ago, I decided I needed to come to grips with what Jesus actually said. So I read through the Gospels, trying to find every reference to money or giving or debt or owing or generosity, anything like that. And, and I, I read through and I got all those scriptures, I cut and pasted them, and I read them all together and said, what can we learn about what Jesus really taught about money directly from what Jesus said? And um, I pray that this week, next week, and the third week that we're on this theme, I pray that you will let what Jesus actually truly said about money, that you will let that start to influence and shape your money story. Because I think you will find incredible freedom if you will do that. And the other choice is if you don't do that, then you give permission for everybody else to control your heart and parts of your souls. If Jesus is not the master of your money story, your money story will become your master. If Jesus is not the master of your money story, your money story will become your master. So what did Jesus really teach about money? There are lots of scriptures, because obviously I went through you know, all four Gospels. Um, so, and there are more than I'm going to throw up here, but we throw some on the screen behind me um, in case you're taking notes. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to take notes, email me and I'll send you the manuscript or we'll send you the, the um, PowerPoint slides. So what did Jesus actually teach about money? Number one, the good news is 
Jesus actually cares about your financial well-being. It's clear from his teachings. When you read all the things that Jesus says, it's clear that Jesus cares about your income and your expenses. He cares about your financial well-being. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus has just told the parable, interesting parable of the shrewd manager. And he concludes the parable like this in verses 10 um, to 15. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous, in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So as we look at this, is one of those typical sayings that Jesus has about money. And just let me point out five, five points just in these few verses. First of all, Jesus wants us to be faithful with the little matters of money so that God can entrust to us true wealth. It's interesting. We tend to think, well, money is wealth. But Jesus wants us to be faithful in that puny thing about money so that God knows he can trust us with true riches. Money is just money. All it means to God, the way that God uses it in our lives, is to test our hearts to see what is really going on within us. So our money means nothing to God. But our money reveals everything to God. It means nothing in and of itself, other than how it proves what is in our hearts. Um, if our finances are not under his authority, God's not going to bless us with other true wealth. And you know what? Life is hard enough all by itself. It's hard enough to, to, to warrant not working against God who's withholding blessings because we are not submitting our finances to him. Secondly here, we see that Jesus wants us to experience the joy of loving and serving God alone and not divided devotion. There is a bifurcation, there is a fragmentation of our souls when we try to, to worship God and overvalue money. Jesus says you can only do one or the other. There's no middle road. There's no little bit of this, little bit of that. There is no mixed devotion. Jesus wants to protect us from that bifurcation and fragmentation of our souls that comes from, from trying to serve both God and money. Third here, we see that those who loved money, the Pharisees, we didn't read far enough. The next verse. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Those who love money, did you catch that, that, that emotion? They sneered. They had a visceral reaction against what Jesus said because they loved money. So this strong emotion around money is not just something for us. It is something that we see 
in the scriptures as well. And I want to forewarn you, those who don't honor Jesus Christ above all else will sneer at Christian views of money. Just be prepared for that. There will be a pushback because this is powerfully countercultural, and you should be aware that it will come. Fourthly here, God, Jesus says, always knows our hearts. You might be able to fool me. You might be able to fool the people around you. You can never fool God because he sees your heart. He always sees your heart. Now, that goes two directions, okay? He sees our hearts when we have, have polluted our worship of him and tried to mix it with other things. But he also knows our hearts when our hearts are pure and our devotion is true and we want to serve and honor God and God alone. And then lastly, in these verses, Jesus tells us that what is highly valued among men is an abomination. Another strong word around this whole theme. It is an abomination. It is detestable in God's sight, which ought to forewarn us as followers of Jesus, as we're trying to make our way as pilgrims in this world, this is not going to be an easy task because what the world loves and wants us to love is an abomination to God. There is that much of a difference between God's ways and the ways of the world. Our culture is going to try to hammer you into thinking about money the way it wants you to think about money. And our culture is going to spend lots of effort and they're going to hire specialists to try to convince you to buy the ways the world thinks about money. Have you ever wondered how it is that we live in the richest country in the world, yet so often we feel like we don't have enough? It's absurd. We are in the richest country in the world. Most of the world would look at all of our lives Even if you're in school and you're making no money, even if you're unemployed, you got three meals, you got a warm place to stay, you've got support structures, most of the world will look at our lives here in this room and say, we live like kings. Yet how is it in our culture that we feel like we don't have enough? Bill Wolf is a media observer, and he writes this. He says, for a product commercial to work, the audience must accept two premises. So listen to how the world's going to try to hammer you into its mold. The audience must accept two premises. First, that life as it exists right now is inadequate and inferior. And second, that improvement can be obtained through a purchased product or service. There is an entire industry thinking about how to get you to feel like your life is inferior so you will buy something from somebody. And the first choice that we have when we study what Jesus has to say about money, what he really says about money, the first choice that we're going to have to make is, do we believe enough that Jesus cares about our financial well-being that we will trust and obey what he says about financial well-being? So number one, Jesus is committed to our financial well-being. Number two, but Jesus cares first and foremost for our hearts. Why did Jesus talk so much about money if money didn't really matter to God? The reason I think that he talked so much about money is because of what it reveals. So look at this scripture in Luke chapter 12, 
verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why did Jesus talk about so much about money? Because it tells him so much about our hearts. And he cares that much about our hearts that he will talk about our finances. Um, here's the absurdity of trusting in money instead of trusting in God. It doesn't matter how much you care about money. Money is never going to care about you. It doesn't matter how much you love money. Money will never love you back. It's a horrible trade. To the extent that we put our trust in money, money is going to disappoint us and it will fail us. Taxes will erode it. Thieves will steal it. Inflation will shrink it. Economic downturns will drain it. And we can't take it with us to eternity. You know, that conversation that happens in the funeral home, one person asks another, another person, how much did the old geezer leave behind? And the second person said, all of it. It's not going with us. It's not going to shape you, or it's not going to influence your eternity. You want a surefire way to be free from financial stress for the rest of your life? Don't put your trust in money. Put your trust in God. And you can have financial peace for the rest of your life. In Luke 12, to 24, Jesus says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? You know what? You can always trust that God will care for your soul. Put your trust in him and not in money. So number one, Jesus cares about our financial well-being. Number two, Jesus cares first and foremost about our hearts. Number three, a bunch of scriptures around this theme. Jesus cares about how we make our money. This is interesting, and I'll just give you a number of scriptures here. Mark 10, 19, Jesus says, do not defraud. Simply, clearly, do not defraud. Which means that the followers of Jesus, we never defraud. We do not cheat on our taxes. We don't take office supplies home to use. We don't overbill for our services. We don't, don't provide or present um, reimbursement requests for things we didn't send. We do not defraud. Jesus cares about how we make our money. And any money that you have made that is in any way dishonest is tainted before God. We will not defraud. Second scripture here is Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Jesus is talking to two groups of employees. He's talking to um, tax gatherers. And to the tax gatherers, he says, be honest in the amount of taxes you gather. Because it was endemic in that industry field in Jesus' time to collect more taxes than were due. And then you pocket the rest. Jesus says to the tax gatherers, do not, or, or he says to them, be honest in the way you Gather your taxes. Then he's got a bunch of soldiers. And Jesus says to the soldiers, don't take money by force from anyone. These were people who could. If they were shy and paying their bills for the month and meeting their budget, they had the weapons and they could force people to give them the resources that they wanted. 
To one group, he says, be honest. To the other one, he says, you don't take money by force. And then he has this comment, which is so incredibly countercultural that we can hardly imagine it. He says to both of those groups, be content with your wages. You realize how contrary that is to our culture? Our culture says to us that we should never be content with our wages. We should always make more next year than we made this year because we are not complete. Something's wrong if we are not making increasingly more and more and more. And Jesus says, you want to be freed from that? Be content with your wages. I had a friend in Honduras who figured out what it cost to live. He and his wife, and then when they had kids, they added in that. Two, they had two boys. And he figured out by the time he was 25 what it was going to cost him to live. And every pay increase he got after that, he gave away. And he lived on the same budget he had when he was 25 years old. There's a guy who's content with his wages. In Luke 20, verses 47, 46 and 47, Jesus condemns Pharisees. And there's this phrase, Pharisees who devour widows' houses for personal gain. And then they go to the synagogue and they have these long prayers of holiness. And Jesus condemns them. Followers of Jesus, we do not oppress the poor to get more money in any way. This means that we do some more research than most people have to. We find out whether wages are being paid that are fair for our coffee, for our chocolate, for our banana, for bananas, for our clothes, for our iPads. We care whether those who are working are getting paid fairly. And in um, James chapter 5, James comments on this, and he says, look, he's saying this to the Christians. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay to the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. This truth means that we are going to have to be more intentional in figuring out whether we are contributing to the injustice of wage inequality in the world. And um, when we have obtained money unjustly, the Christian way is to give it back with compounded interest. So Zacchaeus had a Jesus encounter in Luke 19. And Zacchaeus says to the Lord, he says, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I will give to the poor. And then this line, If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus cares about how we make our money. Number four, Jesus wants us to be good managers and stewards to meet our financial obligations. Again, lots of scriptures sprinkled around of Jesus saying this. He says we're to pay our taxes. We're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. In Matthew 15, Jesus makes it clear that we are to care for our parents. He, he, he criticizes those who, who de- neglect their parents and then give extra money um, as part of their tithe. Um, we are to um, support pastors and missionaries because G- Jesus says in Matthew 10 that the worker is worth his keep. In short, we are to be wise managers of the resources that God 
has entrusted to us. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 to 48, um, Jesus says, The master puts the faithful and wise manager in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. The master will put him in charge of all of his possessions. And there's this interesting line. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The more you have, the greater your responsibility to be faithful stewards of what you have. I think one of the reasons that Jesus emphasizes this point of wanting us to manage our our income and our expenses and be good stewards, I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons is because Jesus wants to protect us from the slavery of debt. You know this already. You are a slave to the one to whom you owe money. And Jesus wants to protect. Every form of slavery crushes the human spirit. And financial slavery does the same. And Jesus wants to protect us from that. Number five. Two more points here. Jesus wants to protect us from the deceitfulness of money. Bible never says it's wrong to have money. Never says that money's sin, money's wrong morally in any way. But Jesus wants to protect us from the deceitfulness of money. Remember what Jesus said? That it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Money is not bad. It's not sinful in any way. But with money comes moral responsibility. And there are unique moral pressures and perils that come with our money. And this matters for us here at Cornerstone because of what I said a few minutes ago. We are the rich in the world. We're trained, we read things about the rich in the scriptures and we go, oh, that's not us. That is simply not true. You are wealthy beyond what most people can ever conceive of. When the scriptures talk about the rich, they're talking about us. So we need to pay attention. When Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about people like us. Matthew 4.19, Jesus talks about the, in, the, in the parable of the, the sower or the soils. Jesus says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the person who hears the word. Listen to this. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word, making it unfruitful. The deceitfulness of wealth will choke the word of God's fruitfulness in your life. So what is the deceitfulness of wealth? A couple of them. You can come up with way more than this. Here's, um, here's some lies about money. If you have more money, you will have more happiness. We know that's not true. Yet it's an undertone throughout our culture. <coughs> if you don't have what, other, what others have, you failed. Something's wrong with you. Here's something our culture always encourages. Our culture encourages us to always compare up. Always compare with those who are richer so that we feel impoverished. It never encourages us to compare down so we feel rich. My deficiency in life will be be fixed, will be resolved if I just buy one more thing. Our culture says you can never have too much money. More money will make you more secure. Nicer cars and better toothpaste will make you sexier. You can't afford to be generous. 
You just don't have enough money. If you don't put enough in a retirement plan, you will end your days in misery and poverty. Right? That's constant. That is in commercials all around. You know that's not true, right? Be responsible with your retirement, but the commercials aren't true that you will be in abject poverty throughout your old age. Um, Buy now, pay later. There's a great one. Go ahead. You're worth it. You deserve it. You've been through so much, poor you. If I don't keep up with my peers, I'm a failure. If I don't meet my parents' expectations for making more money, I'm a bad child. Always take the career job that pays more money. So yesterday in the football game, by the way, great football game, right? Nobody's even said anything about it. I guess we don't praise God for the Pats because if they lose next week, it might be his fault. All right. So I only did this through like the the middle of the second quarter. I was just paying attention to the commercials. Here's what um, we learned yesterday during the... um, the Patriots game. If I buy ice cold cores, I will find refreshment that never ends. Really? Really? If I buy Pepsi, I will become one of the beautiful people. Who knew it was that easy? A fresh meal from Chili's will satisfy all my yearnings. Tostitos will make me to be accepted by the jocks. If I buy a new iPad, I will automatically become one of the cultural creatives. If I buy Budweiser, I will get inspiration to be up for whatever excitement is up and coming. The line on that is, if you believe that, then you've figured out that Bud don't make you wiser. All right. If I don't see the Super Bowl, my life will suck. Didn't you hear that in those commercials? If I buy a Surface Pro, my life will become great. And I quit doing it like the middle of the second quarter. Sometime just for kicks and giggles. Maybe for the Super Bowl. Watch the commercial and identify the lies. Just write them down. And they're so absurd as to be laughable. Yet we are sucked into the deceitfulness of wealth. So Jesus in Luke 12, 15 says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus told parable after parable after parable parable about money so that we would, would fight the deceitfulness of money. He told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the unmerciful servant, the workers in the vineyard, the tenants and the landlord, the prodigal son and the prodigal father. And he told this one about the rich fool, in Luke 12, 16, and on. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Have you ever, have you seen the statistics on how houses in, in the United States have grown in square footage over the last three decades? Okay, so this is American culture. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a Bud commercial. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So, Jesus says, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The truth is, 
regardless of what our personal money stories tell us, regardless of what our culture tells us, the truth is that money will not satisfy. And you can pursue it for the rest of your life, but it will never satisfy you. It will, in the end, disappoint you and disappoint your children if you pass it on to them. It won't make you more secure. It won't, it won't help you do better in life. So, a couple quotes here. Benjamin Franklin. I think this one's on the wall out there. Um, I'd actually um, found this a number of years ago, but I seem to remember within the last few weeks I read it out there. Benjamin Franklin. Just listen to this. It's just common sense. Money never has made a man happy yet, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, money makes a vacuum. If it satisfies one want one way, it doubles and triples that want in another way. And you know it's true because a week after you open that new toy, it's not enough anymore. G.K. Chesterton, somebody pointed out to G.K. Chesterton, who was a writer in the the 1900s, somebody pointed out to him, a man who made himself extremely wealthy, and Chesterton said this, he says, to be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. Another person's written, money will buy a bed but not sleep, books but not brains, food but not appetite, a house but not a home, medicine but not health, amusement but not happiness, finery but not beauty, a crucifix but not a savior. Tertullian in the third century, one of the fathers of the church, says nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Which leads to the last point of the sermon today. Jesus taught us that the way to financial wholeness is generosity. Our culture says the way to financial wholeness is make more. Jesus says the way to be free, to have financial peace and wholeness, is generosity. Listen to these sayings from Jesus, Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 10, 8. Freely you've received, freely give. Luke 6.30, give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And then Acts 20 says that Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's ironic, isn't it? The way to financial sanity is to give more. John Wesley, 18th century revival preacher, one of the founders of Methodism, wrote, I fear that wherever riches have increased, with exceeding few exceptions, the essence of the faith, the mind that was in Christ has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For our faith must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. And these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world. What way then can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? And he says, there's one way, and there's no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace, and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Perfect reflection 
of Jesus' way to financial freedom through generosity. There's an epitaph in a cemetery in Scotland that says, what I spent, I had. What I kept, I've lost. What I gave, I have. Jesus cares about your financial well-being. He cares first and foremost about your heart. He cares about how you are going to make your money. He wants you to be a good manager to meet all of your financial obligations. He wants to protect you from the deceitfulness of money. And Jesus teaches that the way to financial wholeness is generosity. So let me give you just a very practical exercise you can do this week to get a grip on your money story. Because it does go back to that. As long as you are unaware of your money story, it is just going to bubble out and emerge uncritically and it's going to spew on other people. So, very simple exercise. Get a notebook, just a little tiny thing, and carry it around with you this week. And whenever you think of it, or at the end of the day, whichever works best for you, write down emotional responses you have to money. Spending it, saving it, watching other people with it, without it, doesn't matter. Just, just record some of your emotional responses to money in some kind of a journal or some kind of a notebook. And then at the end of each day, just read through your emotions about money and see what you notice about your money story. It's going to be different than anybody else's, but there are roots, there are reasons why your story emerges with certain emotions around it. And then at the end of the week, you know, wait till you've done it four or five days, take those observations that you've noticed about your money story And see if you can find biblical truths, things that Jesus taught that directly address those things in your money story. If you have a hard time figuring those out, then talk with a Christian friend. Say, hey, I'm finding that this this thing's in, this fear is in me that that I'm going to be destitute or this fear is in me that I'm going to disappoint my parents or my spouse. Can you help me find biblical truths about it. Talk with a Christian friend, get to one of the pastors, email, text me, and you can usually find scriptural truths that counteract the lies that you believe in your money story. And, um, and then I just want to encourage you, try to make it a practice every once in a while in your community group or with a good friend of telling your money story. Because I want to, be, to have, have healthy, wholesome talking about money be part of our culture as a congregation. So we covered a lot of territory. Next week, we're going to look at at some more truths that Jesus says about money. And then I want to encourage you, I will next week, to develop four plans in your life for your money. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is like this huge area that we've tackled. And it's always easier just to do one text than it is to, to read through the Gospels and try to find out all the things the gospel says about one subject. But in this area, it's overwhelming when we realize how little money matters and then how much it matters because it reveals our hearts. I pray, Father, for incredible financial peace and well-being and sanity and wholeness and holiness to emerge in the money stories of everyone in this room. Certainly for our own well-being, but maybe just as much for the well-being of our children to whom we will hand down many of our values. So continue to help us grow in this area, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.